So um, if you're joining us for the first time, we'd like to welcome you um, to our live stream. And we've been in the series called Authentic Faith in an Artificial World. Um, as we continue on in the series, the big question that we're trying to tackle, um, especially throughout our entire series, is this. How can we, as a church, grasp onto real authentic faith in a world that is increasingly artificial? How can we, as a church, hold on to true, genuine, gospel-saving faith in a world that is automated, in a world that is automatic in terms of instant gratification. And for me, I was just thinking about this. You know, I've, I've been tasked to preach the word of God today. Um, I think in order to talk about grasping onto real authentic faith, especially in a social media age where there's so many things just grabbing at our attention, fighting for our attention, I, I felt the conviction to talk about discipleship. I think we need discipleship more now than ever. We have to be intentional in how we disciple our spouse. We have to be intentional in how we disciple our children, to disciple the people at our church, to disciple even friends or coworkers or other individuals that God have placed into our lives. We have to be intentional in even discipling the next generation because if we don't do our part in discipleship, guess what? Someone else will. Someone else will disciple our kids. Someone else will disciple the people around us that we care about. I feel like our country right now, we're at such a crucial time right now because there are so many ideologies, okay, um, both good and bad, both God-glorifying and demonic that are shifting and evolving. And what I see is people are becoming more divided and to be honest with you, I'm extremely concerned and worried for the church right now, especially in America. I am so concerned because we are so divided. And honestly, all I have to do is just look at my newsfeed, look at my social media, look at my Instagram stories. And although I do see very important, healthy, God-glorifying content, I also see a lot of toxicity. I see my own brothers and sisters bashing each other left and right. As Christians, in order to strive for unity, we have to remember that the commonality and the fellowship that we have with other believers, which is Christ, is what bonds us together. It's what unites us together. And I believe that's why Paul writes in Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. And for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the distinctions of race, the distinctions of socioeconomic uh, status, and even gender is big, right? The distinctions are so huge. The discrepancy is huge. Um, but to Paul, these differences and distinctions are so small compared to the commonality and the oneness we have together in Christ. Christ is the unifying bond that we have with one another. And that's what's going to keep us united. I firmly believe that the greatest thing we as the church can offer to the world right now is discipleship. It's pointing people to Jesus. It's walking alongside others season by season as we follow our master, Jesus Christ. Why is discipleship beneficial to the world? 
Well, because following Jesus means this. You'll learn to adopt his character of compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, mercy, patience, grace. And following Jesus means that you'll care about the things that he cares about, like repentance, such as people, lost people, knowing the love of God the Father, faith in the kingdom, justice for those who are marginalized and vulnerable. But not only is discipleship just good for our society as a whole, discipleship leads to souls being saved through the power of the Spirit. The passage that we're going to be talking about today gives us a lot of insight on Paul's discipleship and the lengths that he goes to in following Christ in obedience. So right now what we're going to do is read this passage from Acts chapter 20. Um, So please, um, if you have your Bibles out, please turn there. Um, We'll also be posting it on screen right now. This comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 24. This is the word of God, and it says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to him, this is Paul speaking, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to uh, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions wait me, await me. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Amen. Luke here, he's the author of this book. He gives us so much detail on what Paul's ministry looked like. He said, He records Paul saying, Paul serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials. And this shows us ministry is painful. I I should have thought twice before I went to pastoral ministry because it's so painful and it's so true. It, It is filled with tears and trials. Paul here, as he is describing his ministry, he's doing something very unpopular during those times. So in Greco Roman culture, you know the word that we read? Humility? That word has a very negative connotation. So for instance, if that word was applied to you, you are viewed to be pathetic. You are viewed to be a pansy. It was a term of shame. It was a term of lowliness. And Paul here, what we see, he's being vulnerable. He's showing his weakness. He's being honest and raw before, you know, the Ephesian church. Paul also mentions that he did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable We see here that Paul had courage and boldness. He wasn't afraid of what people thought. He knew that the message that he had was so important and vital to souls, and he preached it boldly. And this is why I fully believe Paul when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul didn't care about being canceled. 
He didn't care about being stoned or beaten. He didn't care about the pressure and criticism he faced, not only from the Greeks, mind you, but also his own kin, his own tribe. Paul's main concern was, you know what? Forget what happens to me. There's souls at stake. People are either going to heaven or hell. So if I can win a soul at the cost of my own image and reputation, so be it. If I can win a soul at the cost of my own physical well-being and health, so be it. If I can win a soul at the cost of even my own freedom to be imprisoned, incarcerated, wrongly, so be it. And because of that, he, he, he tells us in this passage, he taught in public. He went from house to house, testifying the gospel to both Jews and Greek. There was no partiality. Paul showed no favoritism. He lived with them. He worked with them. He preached the gospel without holding back. Now, after describing his ministry to the Ephesians, Paul says, here's my plan. I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. I'm constrained. I'm tied. I'm bounded by the spirit, not knowing what will happen other than imprisonment and afflictions await me. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying like, I have this urge. I feel bounded by the spirit to go back to Jerusalem. Um, I don't know how this is going to play out at the end of the day, but the spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me in every city I go to. And this is how Paul responds to that statement in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from Jesus to testify the gospel. You know, if we look at this passage, we see two different parts. Um, the first section is Paul describing his ministry with the Ephesians, right? Uh, and the next part that we see in our passage is Paul's next step. Um, as I was examining this and studying this for today, I saw a common thread between those two parts from verses 17 to 24. And this is a common thread. Paul's fanatical obsession in preaching the gospel you see that both in how he did ministry and how he was so pastoral to um, the church that he planted. Um, you even see his fanatical obsession with the gospel and, will, and his willingness to go through far lengths to even risk his life for the sake of imprisonment and afflictions. I think this passage, Acts 20, verse 24, this is, Paul's, this is Paul's, excuse me, whole life thesis. Paul was willing to put his life on the line to preach the gospel. Paul was willing to be jailed, to be beaten, to suffer injustice, even by the hands of his own people, in order to preach the gospel. I have a question. So this passage that we're looking at right now, Acts 20, verse 24, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Meaning, is this verse just a description of what Paul's ministry looked like? Or is this verse kind of like application for us to church, um, an example for us to follow? Now, here's what I think. I think it's both and. I think it's descriptive because um, Acts is descriptive by nature. Um, Paul's mission to preach the gospel to unreached Gentiles, that was his own specific mission. Um, that was his own specific course and the race that Jesus has given him to run. 
However, I also do believe that the cause of Christ being more valuable than life itself, I think that's prescriptive. And the reasoning why I think that's prescriptive is because I see it all throughout scripture. In other words, I cannot be a Christian and simultaneously put the greatest value on my own life. And the reason why is because the heart of the gospel is all about self-sacrificial love. It's all about my life for yours. Self-sacrificial living is at odds against self-preservation. And being a follower of Christ means that the cause of Christ takes priority over life itself. I want to go to a different passage in scripture. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, when Jesus is talking about taking up the cross, you know what that means? He's pretty much saying, look, you're going to suffer and die in any way I call you to. And this passage shows us that, you know, if you really cling on to self-preservation, if you really make that the main um, goal in your life, that's actually going to lead you to lose your life. However, if you're able to lose your life for my sake, referring to Jesus' sake, you will find life. This is another passage that comes from 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is crazy because if we look at that passage, Paul's pretty much saying like Jesus died so that our purpose of living is different. It's shifted. It's changed. No longer do we live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus who died for us. You know, the gospel message is such a great message. It's a message of compassion, forgiveness, commitment, redemption, grace, satisfaction, hope. But the gospel is also offensive. It really is. You know, Jesus saying in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a very offensive statement. And a lot of Jesus' contemporaries during his time took offense to that. And you know what? People today, they bash on Christianity because they think we are a bunch of pretentious, hypocritical, spiritual elitists who claim to have the greatest solution to life's greatest problem. And to claim that you have access to salvation and others don't, um, that's offensive to the world. You know, Jesus also said in Luke chapter 14, whoever doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. This is radical. He cannot be my disciple. 
Jesus knew that the gospel message was offensive. And what's kind of crazy to me was he was totally okay with people turning away. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. And, and mind you, in, in John chapter 6, he's not teaching to like Pharisees or like other standbyers. He's preaching this to his disciples. So John records to us, many disciples heard it, and their response was this. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And they left. And the most shocking thing to me especially since I'm a people pleaser, Jesus didn't try to stop them. Do you realize that? Jesus didn't try to be like, whoa, 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 actually, you know what? You can keep this aspect of your life, but give me this, this, and this. No, Jesus didn't go after them. They just left. And the next thing he said, he turned to like his, his 12 and was like, you want to leave too? And Peter says one of the greatest lines. He says, where else can we go? Because you have the words to eternal life. Amazing. I'm saying all of this because my point is following Jesus is extremely difficult. I struggle with this. It's totally countercultural to American values because it involves sacrifice. But it's so worth it. Living on mission as the people of God, as the church of God, living for the cause of Christ, it brings us so much peace and it gives us even a greater understanding of God's love and his care for our lives. Now, obviously, I don't think this means that everyone has to become pastors and missionaries. Um, This doesn't mean every Christian is called to be a martyr. But I do believe that we as the people of God, we as the church, we cannot go into church without thinking, how can I advance the cause of Christ? We can't go, we can't step into our marriages without thinking, how can I advance the cause of Christ? We can't fight for social justice and equality apart from thinking, how can I advance the cause of Christ? And for me, when I look at this passage, you know, Acts 20, 24, this is so exposing to me. And to be real with you, I had such a hard time, like, prepping for the sermon. Like, I texted Joe twice, like, pray for me. Like, pray for me. I'm so stressed out, right? And the reason why is because this passage, this, just, this one verse, it exposes so much sin in my life. I feel so ashamed because as a pastor, I can't relate to what Paul is saying. That's not my reality. Um, One of the worst traits I have as a human being is that I'm extremely particular. A lot of you know this. A lot of you have argued with me because of this. Um, I am very particular, especially when it comes to music, um, coffee, clothes, and food. Um, I honestly have a story like in my head that I can tell you of each, how I'm, I'm so just pretentious about music, coffee, clothes, food, but I'm just going to talk to you about food, okay? Um, and this is interesting because I'm so particular and opinionated that people actually ask me for advice and recommendations, like, oh, like what restaurants do you recommend? Uh, where can I get the best, I don't know, carne asada tacos, whatever. And it's a good feeling for me. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest, it's a good feeling. It's elitism, right? It feeds my ego, and I'm not bragging about that. I'm so particular about food that one time, um, my housemate wanted to cook for me and the entire house. Um, But this person would tell me, you know what? I want to cook for you guys, but I don't know if you would like my cooking because you're so particular about food. And I heard that. I was like, "Mm, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't cook then. (laughs) Right. And there's so many times where people would say to me, oh, you know your stuff. I didn't know you knew about that restaurant. You're such a foodie. And because... 
I don't want to look like a pretentious snob. I make this lame self-deprecating joke by saying, oh, foodie? Nah, not me. I'm a fatty, right? In the Philippines, um, I was privileged to lead a couple of missions trip there. And um, part of my job as a team leader was to take care of like logistics and food, right? Um, I was in charge of the meals. And it's kind of nice because I'm so picky with food, I can decide, okay, I'm not going to eat balut, I'm going to eat like chicken, right? And um, I, I forgot this, I had this conversation with one of the contacts. Um, I was trying to plan what to eat for dinner with my contact and he was like, uh, what do you want to eat? And I was kind of getting sick of the food where <laughs> I'm on missions, right? I'm getting, the sick, I'm getting sick of the food all around me. And I was just like, oh, I don't know, something that tastes good. And I don't know why we were talking about this, but for some dumb reason, I just said, I want to eat for the taste, <laughs> right? And this is how this uh, contact friend, um, this is how he lovingly responds. Randy, in the Philippines, we don't eat for the taste. We eat food to survive. And I'm like, oh, oh shoot, yeah. That's true. This made me think, how can I be such a snob about food when over 20,000 people in the world die every day just from hunger? That's a lot of people. 20,000 people all over the world, they die because of starvation because they don't have food to eat. And this number, mind you, is significantly way more than the numbers of people dying from COVID-19 daily worldwide. Francis Chan, he, he preached on this passage and he said this, um, just like how we have become foodies in our culture, we have also become spiritual foodies. And he explains, um, there's so much content, there's so much great content uh, when it comes to gospel preaching. There's this podcast, we can, listening, we can listen to this preacher any day of the week. Um, and we kind of became the Yelp, this is Christians in America, we became the Yelp of sermons and Christian podcasts. And he starts... Um, Note that churches uh, compete against each other, right? Um, like, like even for pastors, we have this tendency to kind of look over the fence and see what other pastors and churches are doing. And we do a quick game of compare and contrast. And just like with food, we're quick to tear apart and critique a pastor or a church or a ministry. Meanwhile, there's people on this earth living right now that don't even know that they have a creator, there's people living in this world right now that have never heard of these two words, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying all of this to guilt you or to condemn you, but I'm showing you using my life as an example, my experience of how the word of God exposes us. Namely, how Acts 20 verse 24, verse 24 exposed me. Because I came to a realization and this is me just like confessing to you guys. I care more about the cause of my own self-preservation and self-image. I care more about the cause of my own life rather than the cause of Christ. I need to repent because even as a pastor, it's so easy to deceive myself and to defend even the, my selfish decisions by using biblical arguments. Right, the heart is so deceitful, and we're so good, pastors. We are so good at you know legitimizing something that's selfish. Say, oh no, this is glorifying to God. But here's the thing: the gospel exposes us to our sin, but the story doesn't end right there. God never just leaves us there exposed. He doesn't leave us naked and alone. 
right? When you look at Genesis, he, he clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin. He covered them. And all throughout the history of the Old Testament, he kept covenant. His steadfast love really did endure forever, generation after generation. Yes, God hates sin. He does. God has historically shown wrath and destruction. But in addition to that, God is also so patient. He is so enduring. He's so gentle and affectionate. We have access to the great physician who is able to perform the most difficult heart surgery that we need. But he's so skilled and gentle when he operates. And as he surgically removes the sin in our lives, he's not rough and careless. He's gentle. He's precise. And every movement, every incision, every cutting is carefully calculated. I mean, we even saw this last week, didn't we? Pastor Joe did an amazing job in preaching on um, the prodigal son. And we see that God is not, you know, when a sinner comes to repent and he changes his way and he wants to turn back to God, God is not like, I told you so, you know, like, get out of here. You know, you don't deserve me. But rather, God is like that old man running shamelessly to his kid to embrace him and to say, I'm so glad you're safe. I'm so glad you're back. Repentance is such a blessing because God is always ready to welcome back sinners into his arms. God is so compassionate, and this is what's so great about the gospel. This is why we sing songs of worship. I want to move on to our application. Paul was very specific in this passage on the type of course and the ministry that Jesus has given to him. Um, All of us, we have a specific course to run, but not every one of us is called to be the Pauls, right? But as disciples, there's a couple of characteristics and traits that I think we're called to um, exhibit from this passage. I have two applications. Number one, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Um, in this passage, Paul says, or Luke records Paul saying that he was constrained by the Spirit. And this is important because Paul didn't go wherever he wanted to go, um, but Paul's journey was solely based on how the Spirit wanted to lead him. Um, I think for us, um, you know, quarantine has been such a difficult time, um, and, you know, it just sucks, right? It sucks for all of us. Um, But I do think that there are opportunities uh, for us. And one thing I've been so encouraged to hear in our, like, leaders meetings and in our life group meetings is that people actually have been in the Word. Um, It's more opportunity for them to read and to pray. And my encouragement is to continue on that. Continue to read. Continue to pray. And also, in addition to that, practice your spiritual disciplines. And I think one quick practical thing that we can do in our devotional time, in our prayers, is um, just sit in silence and just ask, Hey, God, how do you want to lead me today? Spirit, where do you want me to go? What kind of conversations do you want me to have? Is there something that I should look out for when I go grocery shopping? Um, Is there um, maybe some person I should pay attention to when I go to work? And I think just asking those questions specifically, um, time after time, I, I truly believe God will lead you to those opportunities. That's the first application, to walk in the Spirit. Second application is this. Seek opportunities to disciple. Seek opportunities to, to disciple. 
we saw in this passage that Paul was actually very active in his community. You know, it's not like he preached in the synagogues or he preached at, you know, different houses and he just went home and did his own thing. Um, Paul went house to house. Um, he talks about tears and trials. That shows me that, you know what? Paul was actually so involved in the lives of others that he formed these very intimate bonds. And we see, we see this all throughout his letters. Tears were plenty, and there was a strong sense of longing. We see this even in First Thessalonians. There's a strong sense of longing when he was separated by these people he loved and cared for. All of this was a result of Paul seeking opportunities to disciple others. Now, I'm not asking for us to jump straight in, but I want to encourage you to prayerfully identify people who you can walk alongside with. Prayerfully ask, um, God, who are the people in my life right now uh, where I can just be friend, to, to simply just be there with them, to mourn with them, to provide for them, to care for them, to pray for them. And pray that those opportunities will lead to discipleship. I think this is extremely important because discipleship is an all-hands-on-deck effort by the entire church. All of us, um, even though we have different roles and functions in the church, we are all called to make disciples. This is not just a call for only missionaries and pastors. This is the directive from our Lord Jesus for every part of the body of Christ to make disciples. And in closing, I just want to say this. I love our church. Like, I really love the Exchange Church. And I don't know if you know this, but this church, before it was planted, this church was birthed out of a desire to make disciples. Um, so Pastor Joe and I, uh, we, we have this mentor figure, and we had the opportunity to work with him on different occasions. Um, I was talking to him, and we just got into the conversation of, like, how our church was doing. And he brought up a story of Pastor Joe when he was meeting with him and another pastor friend at Biola. Um, this was just, like, a really awesome group for them to, um, to meet and to go over a book and to have good fellowship, um, accountability, especially with other pastors. And um, I'm probably butchering this. Um, Joe can probably tell you more in detail. Um, but they talked particularly about, like, your dream your passion. And so um, I forgot, well, I, mean, I don't even know the exact question, um, but it's something in the lines of like, like Joe, like what are you passionate about? Like what do you want to do? And I was so inspired when I heard this. Um, Joe's response was, I don't care about money. Like I don't care about fame. Like at the end of the day, I just want to make disciples. Like if, if I were to just do this and not get paid, like I would do it. Like, this, this is the one thing that I care about. I just want to make disciples at the end of the day. And that passion that the Spirit has put in, in our founding pastor is what led to this church, the Exchange Church, to be planted. And I've been so blessed to see our church take part in discipleship in so many different ways the past seven years. Like, all of you, the relationships that you have built at work, at school, um, in your marriage and how you're discipling the next generation, the way how you're doing discipleship, I think I can confidently say on behalf of God, God is so proud of you, Exchange Church. God is so proud of the risks and the steps that you're taking to make relationships for the sake of the gospel. And personally, 
when I just reflect back on these seven years, there's so many times where I have seen, like when I'm working at Stereoscope, I see other church members having really thoughtful and meaningful conversations with non-church members. I'm just like, this is crazy. Like discipleship is actually taking part before my own, my, my own eyes. My prayer is that God's grace will lead us to not shrink, like as Paul said, to not shrink from declaring the gospel message. And so my encouragement for you know, our church, the exchange churches, keep doing what you're doing. Keep looking for opportunities to disciple, especially right now in this time, in this climate, because the world needs Jesus. And I want to say, man, even me as a pastor, I've been so blessed to be part of this church culture. I've been so blessed to be even a recipient of discipleship from you, um, love and care. Um, So I personally just want to thank all of you as well. The church exists to make disciples. And I pray that God will lead us in courage and in faith to do that at any cost. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this call to discipleship. And you know, we do confess that this is so difficult. And I think in my flesh, I kind of want to respond like the other disciples and saying, man, this is a hard saying. How can I follow this? But even in my own sinfulness and in the ways and how I can't be faithful to your message, in the ways and how I value my own life more than your mission, God, you respond with tender love and care. You are so patient. You are inviting me to come back into your arms of grace. God, we thank you for the grace that you showed us. And God, we want to be like Paul, our hero of faith. We want to be able, God, to make our course, um, the ministry that you've entrusted to us, um, greater than the value that we put in our own lives. Lead us into self-sacrifice, not to self-preservation. Lead us, God, to declare the gospel in boldness and courage so that people would know that Jesus is real and there is a Savior that is waiting for them. Thank you for your word, God, and we pray that you would really be with everyone, God, listening, um, everyone who is hurting, um, everyone who really needs the message of the gospel empower your church to advance the kingdom. And we pray this for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.